Brian McClanahan Show, episode 285. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook and a free audiobook of the same title, Forgotten Founders, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get a free class when you do enroll. And of course, I have courses available for purchase there if you want to support the show that way. You can also go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can also support the show by going to learn true, T-R-U-E, learntruehistory.com. That is my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom, where I teach along with Tom Woods, Brad Berzer, Kevin Goodsman, Jason Jewell, a whole bunch of great people, of course, Tom as well. Uh, so a lot, of, a lot of great stuff there, over 20 courses. It's a wonderful website. You also go to uh, brianmcclanahan.com, click on that shop tab at the top of the page. You can go out and get your Brian McClanahan Show logo on all kinds of cool stuff. Great way to support the show. And, of course, leave a review at your favorite, favorite uh, podcast website. Share it around on social media. Get people thinking locally and acting locally. It's the, it's the only way we're going to do it. Organic growth, one listener at a time. All right, so let's talk about the topic of the day, and that is the film... 1917 and of course World War One. Now I've done a I've done a show on World War One before, um, but I want to talk about this film and then I want to play a little game with this particular film. And that's something that I did early on in my uh, time as an undergraduate in history upper division history courses. It was actually a required assignment, and I flunked it. I, mean, I did terrible at it because I just didn't have the uh, the knowledge to pull it off when I was uh, 19 years old. Um, but now that I'm older, uh, I think I can do it a little better. Um, but that is playing the game of historical inference. What if something didn't happen? And we're going to do that with World War One because World War One, as I mentioned, I did a I did an episode on World War Two, and there was some pushback on that. Well. Why you know World War II is not as dramatic and did not have a dramatic effect on the world as World War One. Well, I agree with that. The point of the World War II episode was to talk about its impact on American culture, which I think is tremendous. The World War One, uh, this episode, and World War One in general had a much more dramatic impact on Europe than it did the United States. But I will bring this into the United States, and of course. I'll tie all this in with thinking locally and acting locally because I think when I, when I talk about the film itself, I mean, we do see some of the major problems of World War I in this film. And I will say from the beginning, 1917 is perhaps the best war film I've ever seen. Now, uh, there are films that have better scenes in them, but this particular film... Uh, just did it exactly the way it needed to be done. 
Um, you can look at some other war films with battle footage and battle scenes, and those things are, are fantastic. This doesn't have any of that. There's, no, there's one scene where you get the beginning of a battle. But uh, for the most part, that's not there. You see the aftermath of the destruction of World War I in ways that make this the most anti-war war film I've ever seen. And it's tremendous. It's tremendous. Um, so let's start with that. Maybe you've seen some of the information. on. Maybe you've seen the film. But maybe you've seen some of the uh, previews for it. Or maybe you've read something about it. It is a single-shot film, meaning that it follows the main characters around for the entire film. <clears throat> the film is only two hours long. And so essentially you get two hours of their life, essentially. Now, I don't want to give away the plot line, so I'm not going to, if you haven't seen it, I don't want to spoil too much of it because it's just really good. There is one spot in the film where they're able to pull something off where it's not necessarily single shot for two hours. But regardless, it's like you're there with the characters the entire time. There's no, there's no scene cuts you don't go focus on what the Germans are looking at, and then you're focusing on what the British are doing. It's these characters, the entire film. And they do something really good. There's two characters, and at one point they, they shift the focus from one character to another. And it's ingenious how they do it. And so, I, I mean, that, that part of it alone, the cinematography of this film is top-notch. This film should win just about every award there is to win. The acting is superb. One of the things I like about this film that uh, other war films do, and it's corny. I mean, if you watch Saving Private Ryan, for example, great war film. The, the opening scene where they're storming Normandy is one of the best scenes in any film that's ever been made. It's just fantastic. And of course, if you look at things like Band of Brothers, and other, I mean, there's great stuff... But I'm going to talk about why World War I is not as important in the United States in a minute. And, and why we don't get as many World War I films. There's been a rejuvenation of it. Of course, we're at the centennial of the war. We just wrapped that up last year. But not just that. Um, you have this corny dialogue in Saving Private Ryan, for example. Everything has to be political. And what I mean by that is you've got all the characters. You've got... Uh, uh, People in there that have these different backgrounds, so you got to have all that. You got to have the crazy Southerner, and uh, you know, there's the Jewish character. Um, so you have all this stuff, and of course, they bring all the politics into it, which makes it rather banal at times. I mean, it's it's I, I find that stuff very boring to watch. I don't watch these films so I can get bombarded with politics. There's a little bit of it in 1917, but it's very very subtle. And in fact, what it really is, it's not politics. It's simply anti-war. There's a particular scene where the two character, two main characters are talking about uh, the, one of the main characters won a medal. And he gets into that part of it. And again, I'm not going to spoil it because it's really good in how they deal with this. One of the main characters won a medal and they have this discussion about it. And it's decidedly anti-war. It's, it's uh, decidedly... Um, not just anti-war, but anti-imperialism. So it's very, very good in that way. And people might say, well, that's leftist. No, I, 
I don't think so. Uh, because this guy, the, the, one of the main characters is not, I mean, we, we have this often this criticism, well, if you're against war, you're just a crazy leftist. Uh, conservatives have been against war for a long time, and, and you could even say World War I, as we talk about with inference at the end of this particular podcast, World War I did much to destroy, and as I've mentioned before, destroy the uh, conservative structure of Europe. So World War I was a disaster for conservatism. It was great for Marxism, socialism, liberalism, whatever you want to call it. It was great for all of that but horrible for the traditional order in Europe. In fact, it did everything to upset the apple cart. So conservatives should be, should be very concerned about the expansion of war because the only thing that comes out of that is the destruction of the conservative order, generally. We've seen this particularly since the 18th century. Uh, the French Revolution kicked all of this off. But particularly since the 18th century, we've seen war as the major wrecking ball in uh, the traditional order in Europe and elsewhere, including the United States. So that part of it is fantastic. Again, it's an anti-war war movie. The imagery. If you've ever studied World War I, you've looked at photographs of the war, you've looked at things that have come out, they, they put all of that in this film in an ingenious way. So, for example, there's a scene, you might have seen a very famous photograph of a soldier caught in barbed wire slumped over. They have that in the film. I mean, it's amazing how they incorporate it in the film. Not the actual photograph, but just that imagery. The artillery, the amount of artillery. There's a scene where they show this area where the Germans have been firing artillery, and all the artillery shells. And, I mean, it's a dramatic scene. They come up over this, there it is. And you think, wow, all of that fired at these British soldiers in these trenches. The trenches themselves and what they get into and the stench and the filth, digging out the trenches, men getting crushed in the trenches. I mean, they get into all this stuff. The, the fatigue of being on the front. Um, it's, I mean, that part of it is so good that it's worth the film just for that, just for the imagery itself. Uh, there's one particular scene where he gets these trenches, and, and uh, you might have seen before where the uh, Allied powers, you know, the United States, the British, the French, had dug in. It looked like shells, and, and uh, not you know, seashells, on the trenches. And th there's that. I mean, they have the trenches that look like that. They have tanks. They have air combat. They have aircraft. Anything you can think of, and not a tank that's actually working, but a destroyed tank. They have an area that's a landmine went off, and you see the destruction of that. I mean, this is amazing stuff. Um, so, the, the mud and gore of the Western Front is right in your face the entire film. In ways that no other film that I've ever seen, particularly on World War I, has ever been able to pull off. The complete destruction of the landscape. Uh, it's just amazing. Again, the overall cinematography is something just to watch the film for. And then he gets into a town, or when the main characters get into a town, and there's images, of course, aircraft images, air reconnaissance images of these towns, these French towns that have been completely obliterated by German artillery. And they get into that, and they show you with these flares going off, what that town looks like at night, and it looks just like the photographs. 
It's amazing how they pulled this off. I can't say enough about the cinematography, the acting, which is just tremendous, and of course the suspense. Uh, there's a couple of parts in the film where you jump out of your seat because you don't know what's going to happen, and it's really, really good. Um, I mean, just tremendous. So in that way, um, you shouldn't pass up this film. Of course, again, at the, the, there's, a, there's also a beautiful part near the end of the film where they use the American gospel hymn, Wayfaring Stranger, in a, just a, a moving way. Uh, and so you have the introduction of religion near the end of the film, and it's really good how they did it, how they incorporated that. You have these, I will talk about this particular part, you have these British soldiers getting ready to make uh, an offensive, and they're all in this French forest, in these trees, and you have one particular soloist singing that song, the Sacred Heart version of the song, of the hymn, and it's so powerful. I mean, you are moved practically to tears by this because you know these men are going to be going over the top, and it's the last time many of them are going to take a breath. And there's this hymn. It's so powerful. And of course, one of the reasons why people have called this film the, the World War I version of Saving Private Ryan is because you have as the main plot an offensive that's going to take place, and these two men have to go and notify the British that the offensive is a trap, and one of them, his brother, is leading the offensive for the men. So this brother has to go notify his brother not, not to attack, or at least he's going to find his brother. They have to notify the, the, the commanding officer, a colonel, not to lead the assault. Two men go out. So you've got this brother dynamic there, which is just tremendous. The family dynamic, that comes into it. The impact of war on families. Uh, there's a particular scene where uh, characters run into a uh, to a French young French girl who's a refugee essentially, and you see the the moving impact of war as this town is destroyed. You see the impact of war there, and what it's done to people, the human impact of the war, not just on the landscape, not just on the farms. You see that quite a bit. These French farms which are just wrecked and the city, but the human impact of the war. Not just the soldiers, but civilians. And you see it, the, the toll that it's taking on the psyche of the men themselves and what they have to do. Um, it's just... It's, it's tremendous. I walked out of that film in ways that... Uh, I don't usually walk out of films. It was very impactful. Um, and so... If you want to see a film that's going to make you think, that's going to challenge your emotions in a way, because it is very good at that, uh, I would highly recommend this film. Um, age bracket, age-wise, um, I would say if you're you know older teenager, it is, it is rated R um, for images. There's a little bit of language in it. Um, but it's mostly war images. If they can handle those things and handle a little language, well, I mean, I think it would be fine. Uh, because it is so impactful in terms of the uh, the emotional response you're going to get to war. And again, it's an anti-war war film. Um, that's all I have to say about the film. Go see it. But on the other side of the break here, I'm going to talk about a little World War I historical inference 
And I want you to have a little fun with this and, and imagine some things uh, with World War I. And we'll get into that in a minute. I'll see you in just a minute. Let me talk to you for a minute about McClanahan Academy. I know at the beginning of this particular podcast or this video, I talked about McClanahan Academy. But let me go into a little more detail about why I think you should sign up for it and why, and why I created it. First, a little bit about me. I have a PhD in American history from the University of South Carolina, and I've taught in the college environment for 20 years. And I've seen college students get worse over time, the curriculum get worse, and students are being indoctrinated more than educated now in our higher education system, whether it's high school or college. So I wanted a counterweight to that. And this is why I created the McClanahan Academy. Now, first, it's always free to enroll at McClanahan Academy. You sign up. It's free. And I give you a free course, 10 Myths of American History, when you do sign up. So it's a great way to get an introduction to what I do. But I've got eight courses for sale there and more forthcoming. All of these courses are designed to give you the non-PC version of American history, to take the red pill, so to speak. And I've got two courses in particular, my U.S. History Survey courses, which are designed for homeschoolers. So if you're a homeschooler and you want a good curriculum, and uh, my family has homeschooled all of our children from the beginning, and you want a solid history curriculum, that's why I designed the United States History 18, to 1865 and 1865 to present. You've got enough material, you've got lesson plans, you've got uh, tests, you've got reading material, you've got reading seminars, you've got 36 weeks, if you take them, buy them both, you've got 36 weeks of material, and it can be used as a high school history curriculum, or if you're just a lifelong learner, you can use it otherwise, but it's a great way to get a real history education devoid of Marxism and progressivism and political correctness. So sign up at mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. Again, always free to enroll, and I'll see you there. All right, we're back here talking about the film 1917 and World War I. Again, um, about five or six months ago, I did a, a podcast episode on World War I and how important it was for the world. Um, I want to do a little historical inference, and what do I mean by that? Well, it's a what if. What if these things had not happened? What if World War I never happened? Now, of course, this would take into account that we really didn't have the French Revolution, followed by the Napoleonic Wars, and then the German War of Unification, the Franco-Prussian War, all of these things that led up to World War I. Uh, it would have been you know, the Crimean War, of course, in the 1850s. Um, this war is a byproduct of Europe, changing European political landscape before that. I mean, I think you almost have to go back to say, what if we didn't have the French Revolution? Because that was the real changing. That was the real watershed, the real cha game-changing event in Europe. But in terms of, I mean, let's say all those things happen, and, and one thing doesn't happen leading up to World War I, and that's the Germans decide to de-escalate. They decide to demobilize right in 1914 when the Russians were putting out overtures that we can stop this war. We don't have to let this thing happen right now. The Germans decided to go forward with it. What if they didn't? What if that? What if the Germans said, okay, we're going we're gonna to pause. We're not going to do this. What if the Kaiser had decided that the war wasn't worth it? And the Germans and the Russians um, didn't get into a... Uh, 
severe family squabble in 1914 that, of course, involved later the French and the British and the Ottoman Empire and Italy and everything else. What if that didn't happen? What would Europe have looked like? What would the United States have looked like had World War I not happened? So let's focus on the United States first. If you look at World War I, it really was a transformative event for certain, in certain ways in the United States. Not as much as World War II, because once the war is over, there's a general retrenchment of some things in America. It didn't affect the culture the way that World War II did. But if World War I does not happen in 1914, I firmly believe Woodrow Wilson would not have been re-elected president in 1916. And so you probably would have had President Hughes. Now, of course, President Hughes was a Supreme Court, or Charles Evans Hughes was a Supreme Court chief, a Supreme Court justice, I should say. And so you would have had a President Hughes. You would have had opening on the bench. Hughes would have appointed someone who was ostensibly, at least in theory, conservative. You would have had an opportunity then for the Republicans to control the Supreme Court uh, maybe through the 1920s, but I'm not necessarily certain if Hughes wins in 1916 and Wilson's out, if, the, if progressivism in America isn't really stamped down because uh, Wilson won in 1912 because the Republican Party split between essentially two progressives. But there was an effort by conservatives in America to try to crush progressivism following that. And Hughes was maybe an indicator of that spirit might have been able to move forward a little better. But you see, Wilson's pledge that he kept us out of war and painting Charles Evans Hughes as a warmonger allowed him to win the election in 1916. And of course, he eventually got the United States involved in World War I. But if there's no World War I... We don't have this type of Wilsonian blueprint for uh, the general government, which, of course, was used by the FDR administration during World War II to really ramp up uh, progressivism in America and, of course, um, uh, solidify the New Deal through military action. I mean, that's the important thing. So if Hughes wins in 1916 and becomes President Hughes in 1917. We probably don't see a President Harding. Uh, Calvin Coolidge may have been elected after that. He might have been elected, say, in 1924, maybe. Uh, but perhaps um, Coolidge doesn't think of that as his, maybe he's elected in 24 and 28. And we have a President Coolidge. Maybe we don't have the Great Depression in 1929, perhaps because the world doesn't undergo a tremendous economic dislocation following World War I. The United States doesn't go through this boom period where you have inflationary policies and, of course, tremendous amount of debt and other things. Maybe you don't have all of that. It's hard to say. Uh, without the progressives in power, maybe you don't see this slew of progressive amendments that take place uh, in the uh, late 19-teens. Maybe that doesn't happen. Um, so it's hard to say. It's hard to say. Uh, you know, Maybe we don't get, for example, prohibition. You don't know. Uh, but certainly, 
we might have had prohibition. I mean, they were the Republicans were certainly behind that, many Republicans. So it's not to say that progressivism wouldn't be stamped out completely, but maybe you have a different type of America here in, in uh, of course, 1917 and 18 and 19 uh, when you're seeing these things. Maybe, you know, the 19th Amendment doesn't get passed. I mean, who knows about these things with Republicans in power uh, earlier on rather than waiting until the 1920s. So I think the impact on the United States might have been subtle, though perhaps you don't see progressivism as entrenched as it was because of the Wilson administration. Then, of course, you get the 1920s um, and what happens there. There's no FDR. I don't think with, without without World War I, there's no FDR. I just don't see it happening, though. Uh, if things would have progressed more quickly, say in the United States, maybe hard, uh, maybe uh, you know Hughes and then the Republicans, maybe you see the Great Depression earlier. I mean, it's hard to say how that would have worked out, but I think for certain, um, progressivism would have been put on life support in the United States. Now, what about in Europe? This is where no World War One would have been um, a game changer for Europe. In Britain, you may not have had the Irish independence movement in 1916. There would have been no Easter Rising in 1916. And part of that is because the Irish were being used, of course, as part of the frontline troops in World War I. And there was a certain anti-war resistance to British imperialism in Ireland. Maybe that does. I mean, it's not to say it wouldn't have still been there. Of course it would have been. But the British could have focused their entire attention on these type of things, and they probably would have crushed it outright much more quickly. So you may not have had an Irish independence movement. Ireland may still be part of the British Empire to this very day. Just as Scotland is, you might have seen that with Ireland still. There wouldn't have been a no, Ireland would not have been divided. Which, um, I mean, that's interesting. It would have changed the entire course of British history at that point. Irish history uh, without World War I. So that would have been a tremendous... Uh, I mean, you could have still had it. Maybe it still takes place later on. Maybe there's a peaceful separation later on. But certainly, I don't think it would have happened in the 19-teens. You wouldn't have had this at the end of World War One. this uh, Irish Civil War because of the Irish Free State. All of that may not have happened. Uh, also looking at the, uh, at the British, the, uh, the Ottoman Empire would not have fallen apart, at least when it did. And the British would not have been so involved in the Middle East and say in places like Iraq. In Iran, it would have not, not that particular part of the fall of the Ottoman Empire would not have gone on the way that it did. So maybe the Ottoman Empire continues. Maybe there is a Turkish independence movement at some point, but not directly after the war, which was so transformative in the Middle East. Of course, you wouldn't have had all these strongmen put into place. Uh, the British would not have occupied Iran. Right? So you wouldn't have had all of that going. Of course, they wouldn't have created Iraq. You wouldn't have had all that going on in the 19-teens. And so maybe you don't see the Middle East conflict the way that it develops, of course, in the 20th century. That doesn't happen. Uh, you may not have seen... I mean, look, World War II was much more transformative for the British Empire in terms of places like India. Uh, but uh, following World War I, the British really tried to smack down their, their, uh, their rebellious colonial enterprises. I mean, there was this type of anti-colonialism taking place after World War I. The British, of course, have been weakened by the war, and so they had to get their colonies in line. Well, that doesn't happen. World War I doesn't happen. The British just, nothing, nothing changes there. 
the British Empire would have continued perhaps much stronger than it did because of World War I. Because we know that the big, the big elephant in the room, if there's no World War I, there's no World War II. World War II completely destroyed the British Empire. And the United States, of course, took, took the leading role. The United States became the British Empire. A modified form of it, but that's essentially what happened. So there's no fall of the British Empire. The world looks completely different than it does today because the British Empire continued to exist. No World War I. There's no rise of Japan, of course, in the way that it did. I mean, the, J the Japanese had defeated the Russians in 1905, and I'll get the Russians in a minute. So perhaps the Japanese do become imperialistic, uh, and they continue to expand their empire, but would there have been an opportunity there for a great war? Maybe there was a Pacific, maybe we had just a Pacific War in the 1940s. That might have happened, but there would have been no European component to it, at least ostensibly. It doesn't say that the Japanese couldn't have sided, say, with the Germans still, uh, with a, an imperialist Germany, and uh, where there wouldn't have been some conflict between the British and the Germans. But uh, regardless, one thing we don't we don't think about in all this, I mean, the, the British monarchy is German. So maybe there isn't a world. Maybe there's no big family squabble there, ultimately. I think the biggest component, though, that is something that World War I did that, uh, I mean, it's so transformative, is the rise of the Soviet Union. There's no World War I, there's no Soviet Union. Now, Lenin, of course, was living in Russia at the time the war began, and then he went to Switzerland. And, uh, but perhaps he goes into Germany at some point, and he gets killed just like his brother was. I mean, maybe the Germans, because they're anti-communists, crush in the in the uh, in the early stages this type of communist insurrection that eventually took place all throughout Europe I mean they'd already done so in 1848 maybe they crush another one in the early 20th century and the Soviets never gain hold of Russia the communists never gain hold of Russia and of course Soviets are cities and but you know we talk about the Soviet the communist Soviets they never gain hold of those uh, the the Leninists the Bolsheviks Maybe we don't see that. Now, of course, there was this socialist party, and there, of course, was, was uh, turmoil in Russia. But the Tsar, if the Tsar doesn't get Russia involved in World War I, he has the military resources to put down a, a potential communist insurrection in Russia. And there's little doubt that Nicholas would have done so. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't his father, but he also wasn't his grandfather. Uh, he wasn't a reformer like his grandfather, but he wasn't an autocrat like his father, at least to the extent that his father was. So he was a little bit of a mix, but I think that um, he certainly would have used the his military muscle to put down a potential communist uprising in a way that he could not do because he's fighting the Germans on the Eastern Front. And so the Tsar does not dissolve. In Russia, so now we don't have the Soviet Union. I mean, this would have been a game changer. There's no Soviet Union. There's no Cold War. That alone is worth not having World War One. You see, uh, France is not emasculated by the war. I mean, that's one thing. You know, we look at France and everyone makes fun of France, but France was drained by this war. France still had a very vibrant 
uh, culture going into, and of course, militaristic culture as well, going into World War I, but it was drained by the war in ways that it, it's really never recovered. Uh, the vitality of France has never recovered from World War I. So you don't have that. You don't have this horrible transformation of France into this little weak, puny France. I mean, France was something that was there to keep Germany in check. And World War I destroys that. So that part of the war, I think, is, is interesting. You, know, you wouldn't have had these countries these, uh, suffer the cataclysmic uh, changes that took place had there been no World War I. And this is where I was getting into with the United States. I mean, there's, and also Europe. I mean, conservatives were destroyed by this war. You had the rise of liberal democracies, parliamentary democracies, the, the backlash against the conservative order because people thought the conservative order is what got them into these wars. And so why do we have that? Why don't we get rid of that? We'll get rid of the, of the Kaiser. We'll get rid of, we're going to have this Weimar Republic, which is horrible. And of course, the Germans, the political culture of Germany is much more centralized, uh, at least by the time you get after the wars of unification, with the Prussians leading. And the Prussians are militaristic. And the Prussians, of course, believe in a much more you know, centralized government, much more top-down government. Germany, for a long time, was more decentralized. Maybe without World War I, you see kind of a, a resurrection of these uh, much more powerful regions in Germany. I mean, who knows what happens? But certainly, we don't see Hitler... Uh, and Hitler was a progressive. We don't see the rise of progressivism as, as it happened in Europe because of the war. So in that way, you know, wars are highly destructive. And when I say this is think locally, act locally, there's nothing more that has a more centralizing tendency than war. And you see that in World War I. Uh, you see what happened with the creation of these centralized entities like Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia and Iraq. I mean, you, you have these creations, these countries created out of this. And it's a disaster. World War I led to a disaster in Europe. It really transformed Europe, and of course it created World War II, which was a disaster for all kinds of things, for Western civilization overall. Um, with the creation of the Nazis, I mean, there's... Uh, this is the disaster... The way, the perception of everything um, in Europe. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a disaster for uh, overall, for the rest of human history moving forward, I think without a doubt. So no World War I, you don't have all these things happen. I think this is fun. You know, we could, we could get into much more detail with these things. Uh, but certainly, uh, World War I created problems in the United States politically, created problems in Europe politically, economically, and socially. Uh, and so that is why it's such a transformative event. And while when you watch the film 1970, to bring it back to that, what should be going through your mind is, gosh, what happens if we didn't have this war? Look at the suffering. Not just the military suffering for the common soldier, which was tremendous. But the suffering overall for Europe it was a sad time that we had this great big war in the early part of the 20th century. And if anything, people should walk out of that film thinking, we don't need this again. That's why at the time, they called it the war to end all wars. Of course, it didn't happen that way. But if nothing else, perhaps this will rejuvenate some interest in not having these great big wars moving forward in human history. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. <laughs>